Chapter 19 of Campfire Girls in the Country by Stella M. Francis. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Leanne Howlett. The Rescue. Suddenly there was a flash of light, like the striking of a match close to the overleaning human form, but it did not burn out. That's Mr. Mackenzie, Hazel declared. See, that's the flashlight we gave him, and he's found something. Yes, and here's an automobile, Violet announced, pointing around the edge of a large bush near which they were standing. The others looked in the direction indicated and beheld the forward end of a machine protruding about a foot beyond the foliage of the bush. Suddenly Hazel laid a hand on each of her companions and pressed them back, explaining in a soft whisper, Keep under cover. It may belong to the pickpocket bandits. Wait here a minute and I'll find out. She turned and moved around the bush the other way. A minute later she returned with this announcement. There's nobody in it and I don't see anybody around. I don't believe it belongs to the bandits. Why not? Violet inquired. Because it would be foolish for them to stay so near the scene of their raid with a strange automobile. There must be some other explanation to this affair. "'What shall we do now?' Harriet asked. "'I'm going to signal to Mr. Mackenzie,' Hazel replied. "'I'm going to test his quickness of wit at the same time, and see if he will recognize our call when it's given out in the woods, where it might be mistaken for the call of some denizen of the wilds. He knows what it is, for he's heard us give it, and told me one day that it sounded like a combination of the hoot of an owl and the song of a whippoorwill. Did he say that? Violet asked with a whispered suggestion of a laugh. He ought to be ashamed of himself. Oh, he was just joking, of course, Hazel continued. Now I'm going to give the call just as near what he says it sounds like as I can. Stand as close to this bush as you can so he can't see us. Now here goes. Whoa, hello. Hazel gave the call with a sort of plaintive hollowness that spoke well for her effort. No uninformed person would have suspected it to have been the utterance of a human voice. Eagerly the girls watched for results. They seemed slow coming. For a few seconds there was not a sign of life in the dimly outlined stooping figure. Presently, however, it stood erect and seemed to turn around. Then came the answer and such a falsetto effort to imitate Hazel's call that each of the girls restrained a laugh only with difficulty. There's no warning in that call, Hazel said confidently. Come on, let's go and see what he's found. She turned on her flashlight to enable her to better pick her way, and the other girls did likewise. In a few moments they reached the spot where Mr. Mackenzie stood. There was no need of asking what of interest he had discovered. The girls were shocked with the view of a man lying apparently unconscious on the ground. "'Is he dead?' Violet gasped in trembling tones. "'No, but he hasn't much life left,' Mr. Mackenzie replied. "'I mean that he's weak from loss of blood and exposure.' "'Why, that's Mr. Anderson, the lawyer who came to see Aunt Hannah.' Hazel exclaimed as Mr. Mackenzie threw the rays of his flashlight on the injured man's face. "'And that must be his automobile over there,' 
Harriet added. "'Where is the auto?' the former inquired. "'Over by the bush where we were standing when I gave you the woe-hello call,' Hazel answered. "'Then I'd better put him into his machine and hurry him away to a doctor,' said Mr. Mackenzie. "'We ought to do something for him here first, Hazel suggested. "'What can you do?' He ought not to have those wet clothes on any longer than absolutely necessary. We can go up to the camp for some blankets to wrap him in. That isn't a bad idea, Mr. Mackenzie said. I wonder if two of you girls couldn't take hold of his feet and help me carry him over to the automobile. I'll take him by the shoulders. Then you could go and get the blankets while I got the machine ready to start. Hazel and Harriet took hold of the man's feet as suggested, and Violet lighted the way with her flashlight. It was no easy task, for the wounded man must have weighed at least 170 pounds. But at last they reached the automobile, and with the united effort of all four, aided by the patient, who revived considerably and put forth a fair degree of self-helping energy, they succeeded in getting him into the machine. Then they returned to the camp and got two blankets, delaying long enough to inform Mrs. Hutchins of the discovery. The latter was astonished when she learned the identity of the victim. "'I thought he drove back toward town when he left us,' she said. "'But I suppose he thought the storm was too near and decided to seek shelter in that old building. By the way, you'd better take a flask of cordial back with you to brace him up during the drive.' The girls went to the kitchen tent and took a flask from the medicine kit, and then hastened back to the patient. Mr. Mackenzie soon had the injured man bundled in a reclining position on the rear seat and then attempted to reinvigorate him with a dose of the cordial. Thus far he had scarcely uttered a word, but now all were delighted when he spoke thus in a fairly strong voice. "'Won't a couple of you girls come along and sit back here in the automobile with me? I'm afraid something might happen. The jolting of the machine might cause me to faint and fall off the seat.' Perhaps this good man will bring you back in the machine. You're perfectly welcome to the use of it. Why, yes, I'll go, Hazel volunteered. What do you say, Harriet, Violet? I'll go, said Harriet. And I'll go back and stay with your aunt until you return, Hazel, said Violet. This arrangement being favored by all, Hazel and Harriet climbed into the automobile while Violet turned back toward the camp. The latter gave an agreed signal when she arrived at the tent, occupied by Aunt Hannah, and then the auto, with its two powerful headlights blazing far in advance, started along the road through the timber toward the main highway. As the injured passenger appeared to have recovered considerable strength and seemed to desire to talk, Hazel encouraged him to tell his story in a few words. The two girls were seated on drop seats in front, facing the patient. "'I suppose you know who I am,' the lawyer began, and as Hazel nodded, he continued. "'Well, after I left your camp, the clouds were looking so black and threatening, and the wind was carrying them along so rapidly, that I thought I had not better risk being caught in the storm. So I turned over by that old building, got the machine ready to withstand a driving rain, and got under the roof just as the storm broke.' I don't know how long I waited, but it must have been several hours, 
and I was getting mighty tired and hungry. At last the storm began to abate, and I was beginning to hope that I would soon be able to leave the place when something very unexpected happened. I heard a noise overhead, which plainly meant that some animal larger than a kitten was moving about. I listened intently and presently made up my mind that the sounds could be none other than those of human footsteps. They reached the head of the stairway and then proceeded carefully, cautiously down the steps. I moved back into a dark corner and strained my eyes for as clear a view as possible. Well, the fellow, it was a man, after reaching the first floor, went direct to the fireplace and began to build a fire with wood from a pile of dead timber that somebody had put there. I imagine he must have been asleep upstairs up to the time when the first sounds of his footsteps reached my ears. The fire soon lighted up the room a considerable distance from the fireplace, so that I was certain I would be discovered if the man should turn his eyes toward me. I was not particularly afraid of an encounter with him, for he was a very small man, and, moreover, I could see no reason why two such persons as we, who had sought shelter in this out-of-the-way place, should have any occasion for trouble between us. Still, his actions were so peculiar that my bump of curiosity forced me to decide to watch him and see what he was up to. There seemed to be no good reason for building the fire, for while it produced a cheerful light in that gloomy place, it soon made the room uncomfortably warm. But I was not long in finding out what he was up to. He cleared away a place on the hearth, and then began to produce from various pockets such an assortment of pocketbooks, jewelry, and loose change as to leave no doubt in my mind concerning the nature of his profession. Evidently he had made a haul somewhere. Then I recalled the circumstances of the raid of pickpocket bandits in Fairbury on the 4th, and decided at once that he must have been a member of that gang. After he had made a thorough examination of his stolen treasure, he transferred the paper money into a bill-book, the loose change into one of his pockets, and threw the purses from which he had taken this money into the fire. Then he took from a pocket of his coat what appeared to be a letter, drew from the envelope a bit of folded paper, unfolded it, held it close to the fire, and began to study its contents. At this point in the narrative, Hazel could scarcely restrain an expression of excitement. She was certain as to the identity of that letter. He studied and studied over it, the narrator continued, but seemed to be unable to get anything satisfactory out of it. Meanwhile, I grew very tired standing in an uncomfortable position and shifted my feet to relieve myself. In doing so, I made a slight noise that caused the fellow to spring up in alarm. I don't know what caused me to make the move that I next made, unless it was the consciousness that he was a criminal, and must be desperately alarmed at my discovery of so much stolen goods in his possession. I did not have much time to think. It seemed that I must get him first, or he might get me. So I made a dive for him, figuring on knocking him out before he could draw a gun but he was quick as a cat. He dodged the pass I made at him, and I nearly fell over. The next thing I knew, he was plugging away at me with an automatic. He fired two shots at me inside the building, but missed both times. I ran out through the doorway and into the rain, which was still coming down pretty heavy, but he rushed out after me and continued to pump his murderous machine-gun at me. 
I think he fired about four or five shots in the open. One of them struck me in the hip, I believe, and the pain it sent through my frame was just plain agony. I recall uttering a scream with all my lungs, not so much because of the pain as with a hope of sounding an alarm that might result in his capture. When I fell, my head must have struck a stone or something hard that knocked me out. "'We heard the shots and the scream, and they were the cause of our coming to your assistance,' Hazel explained. "'I want to thank you very much for what you have done for me,' the injured man returned. "'If there is any way in which I can return the favor, I am sure you won't make a mistake by letting me know.' "'There is a way you can do me a great favor,' Hazel said quickly but calmly. "'Tell me how, and it is as good as done.' the lawyer promised, rashly, perhaps. Stop persecuting my Aunt Hannah Hutchins. The wounded man was silent for more than a minute. End of chapter 19